Meetings, meetings, meetings. It's what we do in leadership in the church, right? We go to meetings. Some are great, some, well, not so great. But meetings are such a part of our uh, leadership experience in the church that we felt it important as leading saints to put together the Meetings with Saints virtual summit. And if those of you that have attended other virtual summits, you know how these work. We've gathered about 20 experts or individuals who have a unique perspective about how to effectively run a meeting. And we've interviewed them and we've uh, made that content all part of this virtual summit, which you can watch anywhere in the world. It's free to attend. It starts March 17th and you just got to register. And we're going to cover things like how to make a meeting a revelatory experience, how to create and use an effective meeting agenda, how to hold an effective ministering interview, how to engage all participants in a meeting, even introverts like myself, how to use software applications to streamline your meeting discussions and to really shorten those meetings to a realistic length. And we're going to cover as many types of meetings, even sacrament meetings, there's going to be covered in this virtual summit. So the Meetings with Saints virtual summit starts May 10th. You don't want to miss this phenomenal content. Just text the word LEAD to 474747 to find more information. Or you can go to leadingsaints.org slash meetings. Again, text the word LEAD to 474747 and register for the Meetings with Saints virtual summit. Welcome back to the Leading Saints podcast. My name is Kurt Frankham, your host, and you're awesome. Did you know that? You are awesome. And especially those who are here for the first time, I'm glad you found Leading Saints. Maybe somebody recommended it to you. You know, the best thing to do to share this, and maybe this is how uh, somebody shared it with you, is just drop a link in an email, send it to uh, somebody in your your board or in your in your uh, stake or whomever who you think would benefit from listening to Leading Saints. And uh, so many people say they found Leading Saints because somebody shared it with them. Now, if you're new to Leading Saints, we uh, are a nonprofit organization where we're dedicated to the mission of helping Latter-day Saints be better prepared to lead. Whether that's at church, at home, in your community, wherever, we want you to be an awesome leader. So that's why we have these fantastic conversations. And as you probably heard before, uh, at the beginning of this episode, on March 10th, we are launching the Meetings with Saints Virtual Summit and uh, we want you to be a part of it. And this episode is actually from one of the sessions. There's going to be about 20 or more sessions involved in this uh, in this summit, all around the concept of meetings, how to hold meetings, how to run agendas, how to do, you know, hold a, a one-to-one interview, uh, all things meetings. We're trying to cover it and give you a well-rounded experience to help you with, with meetings all within this summit. And the summit is free to attend. Just go to leadingsaints.org slash meetings. But you've already heard that. This interview is with Deanna Murphy. Now, Deanna Murphy probably doesn't even need an introduction because uh, she's been on the Leading Saints podcast countless times. If you have not taken the time to go back and listen to Deanna Murphy talk about whatever it is, she is so good and so connected and she'll just speak to your soul as you listen to her. And this episode is definitely one of those where we talk about meetings, how to engage people in meetings, how to bring the best out of people in meetings what we should consider about all the perspectives in the room and why it's so important to hear everybody's perspective in the room and maybe sometimes how we can miss that. So Deanna Murphy's awesome. We're going to link to uh, her website and the remarkable things she does as she travels the world, world and teaches various people about leadership. She's one to follow. So here is my interview with Deanna Murphy from the Meetings with Saints Virtual Summit. Today, we have uh, one of our favorite presenters who've been on the podcast and other venues, and that is Deanna Murphy. How are you, Deanna? 
Kurt, thanks for letting me have a chance to be with you again today. I'm doing great and excited to be with this audience today. Good. Well, every time I put any type of content or event or conference together, I'm always thinking, how can we get Deanna involved here? And so I'm so glad that you said yes. And I know that you'll have a lot to share with us. So maybe just if people maybe aren't as familiar with the other interviews we've done or the content that you've put together through Leading Saints, give us your background and, and put yourself into context here. Well, thank you for that. I want to say first and foremost, Kurt, my deepest desire and longing my whole life has just been to be a great mom. So my heart comes from that place first, and I believe that my best leadership training has come in that arena. We have three children, and our oldest son was mauled by a bear when he was 14, and we got to help him coach through his recovery at an LDS scout camp of all things. And our second daughter was born disabled, and she got to help me retrain my eyes from thinking about people from external focus to who are they on the inside seeing that first. And our youngest son came off a snowboarding jump and had a a back injury and a traumatic brain injury that uh, changed his whole life and uh, got in his way of some of the big goals that he planned. So first and foremost, I'm a mom. In my professional world, I've spent 25 years in organizational development. I'm an executive coach. I deliver leadership development training with a focus on interdependent leadership, which as Latter-day Saints, we get that, right? That is, uh, that's the heart of John 17. It's about synergy. It's about how do we become one? How do our hearts get knit together in unity and love? How do we appreciate and celebrate people who are different from us when they push our buttons, when we don't understand them? And we help leaders do that in the work world and lift businesses in that way. So that's probably enough background. There's lots more to say, but that's probably the important things. Yeah. And I'm trying to remember, is it, you're in, uh, are you in Minnesota or? Minnesota. That's right. Yeah, right. that's right. Cool. Minneapolis, Twin Cities area. Nice. And we were first introduced from um, Wendy Ulrich connected us originally. And that led to our, just looking up here, our first interview we did was released in October of, of 2016. And you talked about mentoring Relief Society presidents through love. And you talked about your experience being a stake Relief Society president and how you connected with those Ward Relief Society presidents. Really powerful interview, which touches on the topics that we'll discuss as well today. And then a second interview we did was creating engagement through ministering interviews, where you, again, highlighted the, some of these principles of one-to-one interviews in the context of this new effort of, of ministering interviews. And so having a summit all about meetings, I wanted to maybe touch on these things again, mm-hmm. and then also just talk about how to draw. You have a, a special skill set that you're very effective at teaching others as far as drawing out others in a meeting setting or a classroom setting. But really, you know, you think of ward council, it's, it's really just another teaching setting, right? And, but maybe more formally a council, which, I, you know, I think we hope all of our uh, Sunday school classes are more of a council than, a, than, you know, a teacher-student relationship. So where should we begin with all this uh, more as far as understanding the one-to-one interview dynamic of, of the one-to-one interview meetings and also ward council meetings and, and those dynamics? Where should we go? Well, I'll tell you, it's an interesting uh, question that you ask, and I would name that it, there's actually a principle in your question. So let's actually point to the question in terms of what it is that we're trying to accomplish together. Okay. Great, great leaders, the first thing that they're, they're doing, it's not just what is, it that's, uh, what is it that we're trying to accomplish, but what's important about it. And one of the things that I often see is that when we start a meeting, whether it's, uh, it's a one-on-one or whether it's a ward council, what's the purpose? Why are we here? What is it that we really want to have happen? And to establish that at the very beginning creates power, whether it's a Sunday school class or a ward council or a one-to-one. 
maybe to give an example of that, Kurt, just because a story is somewhat powerful. Yeah. Right now, my current assignment is that I teach 13 and 14-year-olds. They're a rowdy bunch by nature, right? They're kind of fun-loving. They're not yeah. too serious yet. They haven't quite yet got into the depths of the gospel. And yet, I'm watching these 13 and 14-year-olds. They come in the door. The moment they sit down, and we, we will we'll share something like this today. We are here for a very, very sacred and specific purpose. We're here because the Savior wants to speak to you. He's going to speak to you today, and he's going to teach you, and you're going to hear it here in your heart, and he's going to prepare you to help you to positively influence other people. And we're going to be practicing how to do that in this class today, starting right now. Now, I am astounded at how 13 and 14-year-olds who are giggly and laughing come into Sunday school, and almost instantly, their hearts start looking for the Holy Ghost. Hmm. So your question is great, and it's what's our deeper why? And maybe I'd ask you a question in return, which, by the way, is one of the things great leaders do. (laughs) And I'd ask you, Kurt, of all the things you're trying to accomplish in your summit, given the needs of the people who are listening to us right now, what's the most important thing that you'd hope they would learn and they're longing to hear? That's fantastic. I'd probably say, you know, the most important thing is I just hope that people walk away from this summit with a deeper a deeper ability and a deeper motivation to, to run a meeting, right? Oftentimes we sort of get in this, this rat race of, well, we're supposed to have a word council because that's what the handbook says. We're supposed to have, you know, regular one-to-one interviews because that's what the handbook says. But what if we saw these as tools that we can draw upon to create unity, connection, deeper purpose and, and vision, right? And, uh, but sometimes I think on paper, we all think, yeah, of course I want to do that. But we don't know how to get there or we lack the ability to do that, right? And so hopefully they'll, they'll gain something from these sessions that will, will better prepare them to do that. So notice what you just did is that we went from, hey, this summit's all about how to hold a meeting to, wait a minute, what's the real reason we meet? Yeah. If I might add to what you've said, so I love the words unity that was one of the words you use. We meet to unify. Yeah. We meet to connect. We meet because it multiplies our resources together so that exponentially we can accomplish more. The words that are coming up for me as I'm listening to you, Kurt, come from Doctrine and Covenants 43, hmm. 8 and 9. And it's interesting because that's where the Savior says that when we meet together, we're supposed to instruct and edify one another. I believe sometimes we misunderstand and misrepresent that teaching to mean instruct means I am to stand and tell you. Yeah. And notice what we are already doing, Kurt, is a bit of a model of what leaders do as they're empowering others. It is to first ask, what is truly important here? What's our deeper why for coming together? Instruct and edify implies that we each hold a piece. No one holds all the pieces. I get that bishops and stake presidents and stake relief society presidents get special and sweet inspiration. And I understand that mantle well, at least the stake relief society mantle. I don't know the other side of the equation, obviously, <laughs> sure. but I recognize the sacred revelation that comes in that calling, but it's not 360 degrees. Yeah. You get a piece. And if our callings and our chance to meet together is to grow one another, he's growing Zion in us. And it's to become a model of how to knit our hearts together in unity and love. Then when we meet together, the idea is that we are sharing 
unique perspectives, validating one another, adding to one another's perspectives so that we all become edified. And what I find is that when we do that well, the Holy Ghost begins to instruct each of us in very unique ways in our assignments. And I might get different revelation as a Relief Society president that you might get as a bishop. And that's part of the, the the brilliance of it and the promises that are there that as we as we meet in this way where we lift each other, we ask questions together, we multiply together, we become sanctified. We have our hearts bound together. Like I'm thinking of Mosiah 18, our hearts knit together in unity and love, and that we know how to act in uh, carrying out his will. And I I'm grateful for that because I don't know about you, Kurt, but many times as a church leader or as a parent, I would go, I have no idea how to act here. I'm in over my head. I don't know what to do with a kiddo who's got a brain injury, or I don't know what to do with a Relief Society president who tells me I stopped praying three months ago. <laughs> right? I don't know what to do, but I'm pretty sure that as we stay in that place of openness and curiosity and really try to understand the hearts of people and we invite them to share their perspective, then the Spirit begins to teach us all. Yeah. And that's part of the beauty of it, right? Yeah. So, and I've always appreciated you. You, you really t- took a deep dive into this uh, concept when you came out to Salt Lake for one of our live events. As far as this, like three three hundred sixty degrees, where when we mo- walk into these meetings or scenarios, like just realizing we don't see all the perspectives, and the, the people in there each have a different view and, and perspective, and so. And being and, and going back to like being curious and open, like what you're doing is you're recognizing, I don't see it all, but they see something I don't see and I can learn from that. So I'm going to be in this state of owning what I do see and bringing it to the group, but also being open to the other perspectives in the room. Well, Kurt, you've just named something. If, if, we, if we were together, I would, for our audience, I would actually have a stand back to back. And I'd ask you, how far can you see before your peripheral vision ends? So yeah. if you put your arms straight out, you'll start to notice it's about equal to your shoulders and then it starts to end. But if we're back to back, what happens is our hands will touch and I can see to a certain point and then you can see what I can't. There is a lot of research behind what I just named and to offer a perspective if you, if you consider the 360 degrees of perspective and you envision that each strength has a unique view Almost as though we're posed with a problem. Kurt, some people on your ward council, when they're posed with a problem, the first thing they're going to think of is, how will this affect people? It's very relational. Other people will say, I wonder what the root cause is that we should be considering so that we make sure we're operating from the root cause analysis. Someone else would be saying or thinking, I wonder what the most efficient and fast way to execute in resolving this would be. Each of them, none of them wrong, all of them uniquely different. Someone else might be thinking, I wonder what resources we could combine together and marshal to serve and solve this problem. Literally four different domains of strength, each with its own unique perspective. And on a ward council, I've, I've really learned that every single person is going to bring a perspective that is entirely unique. 20-ish years ago, Don Clifton and Marcus Buckingham, the foremost researchers in strengths, identified about 350 different patterns of talent. That's really remarkable. Documented it with 2 million different people on the books. And then mathematically, they started doing this factor analysis or correlation to say, are there some that are similar? And indeed, they found that was true. That's how the 34 themes of the Clifton Strength Finder were created. Mm -hmm. And so 
it's very interesting because there are in these within strengths there we've got some strengths that are diametrically opposed well i recognize i remember being a state relief society president when i would sit one-on-one with my state president we were utterly back to back like literally he was looking at the opposite side of the equation and sometimes i'd be listening to him and i'm going he's talking english but i don't even know what he means and I'd feel confused and then I'd feel scared or stupid or all the things that we do when we're listening, but we don't understand. And I didn't know how to communicate to him sometimes at the very beginning. We were both called at the same time. And so both of us are learning and I'm learning how to communicate with him and he's learning how to communicate with, with me. It took us about two years before we figured it out. About that time, it was time for me to be released, by the way. But over time, we, we had to learn that we both saw different things. His way wasn't right and my way wasn't wrong. It was together, we got more complete. And it helped us as we counseled together about some of the needs to be respectful that the questions that he was asking me, they weren't wrong. They were great. It's just that he was looking in a different place. And sometimes the things I would bring to him, they were important, but he, didn't, he, he always didn't know how to integrate what I was bringing to that equation. And so we got to learn together. We bumped along and we were super kind to each other and very forgiving as we found our way through it. And we learned a lot and we've just become dear friends. I'm very, very grateful for him and, and I feel like we learned together. I think a lot of times when we get into those roles and we feel misunderstood, we get our feelings hurt and we might make up stories about other people and they're judging or not judging us. And I just think there's something for us about recognizing all of us see and we don't see. And when we start to grant ourselves first grace, I had to give myself grace and go, Deanna, it's okay. You've never been a state relief society president before. It's okay if you don't understand what to ask or what to share or what he needs. And uh, to grant myself grace allowed me to grant him grace. When I was self-conscious and fearful that I was failing him, I became maybe more defensive. And I believe that's a very normal thing. And I could track my own defensiveness right back to my own uncertainty, right? It's so easy to impose our negative feelings onto other people. And in reality, I was scared at times because I didn't know. And for me to give myself grace and allow the Savior's mercy to hold that I didn't know, I, I, I really fell in love with Ether 12, which we often quote. We quote Ether 12, 27 all the time. You know, I give unto men weakness that they may be humble as in Heavenly Father gives us weakness, just like he gives us strength, and it's not bad. We often don't quote Ether 1237 that says, because you've seen your weakness, you'll be made strong. Wow. I don't know that it's that I'll be made strong as in suddenly that weakness becomes my strength, but you know what happened? I never became like my state president, but I learned to lean into him, and I became strong in him, and he became stronger in me, and we were more unified in the Savior when we learned to appreciate each other's differences and to hold each other with grace when we didn't know. Yeah. So, and I appreciate you bringing up that example of, you know, a, a stake relief site president with a stake president and sort of the, the d- different dynamics can be happening there at the moment. And, and when we, because sometimes we'll go in and we don't realize that we're back to back. We just think the stake presidency, the stake president is when one galaxy and I'm in the other. And why can't he see it like me? When in reality, you're just seeing different parts That's of the right. same issue, right? And we can sort of, sometimes we can default to, we recognize, okay, the state president has keys, he has authority. So maybe I just need to back up and just 
try and get into his galaxy, whatever it is, right? But when you realize that, no, you're actually standing back to back and you're seeing things differently, it really broadens that experience because I, I would say people either do two things, generally speaking, they either get submissive and they're just like, okay, like whatever you say, you know, you're the leader, you know, okay, you want to do that. And you're thinking, okay, this is the craziest idea I've ever seen, right? Or you get defensive, like, no, president, why aren't you seeing this? Or, or, or you go home and grumble to your spouse that ah, he's just in a different galaxy, right? And so, and any ideas as far as better approaching the, that dynamic that you haven't mentioned? I love that you named it. And as I, as I consider your question, I'm very aware, Kurt, that where you're pointing us, and I feel grateful for it, it is equally applicable at home with your spouse. Yeah. This is true in your presidency with your counselors. And it's true when I'm listening to 14-year-olds who are coming from another galaxy, literally, in Sunday school, that the principle is always true. So let's just, let's talk pragmatics. Let's talk tools. So if we were sitting down together, Kurt, and we were trying to counsel best, let's imagine we're on a word council about where to start. There is always the, the question that we started with today, what is truly important here today? What is the why for meeting we, and, and getting alignment together around it? By the way, sometimes the leader will tell, I believe asking is more effective. I think it's a great way to invite people to consider what's important about meeting here today. And once we identify what's important, it might be that there are some goals that are identified, but let's not forget how we're going to be together as we do that. Number one, that we want to make sure that there's always room for the Savior. Number two, that we're recognizing that we see things different and we're getting curious about what we don't understand rather than feel uh, stupid, which is what our, and it's very easy in our LDS culture where it's really easy to look at other people who seem so perfect, right? And we are so not. And I can't tell you how many times in my leadership experiences, and I'm sure I speak with others on behalf of others who, who are not so different where I would go, if you only knew what was going on in my life, you would never want me to be your leader. Like this, I don't belong here because I'm aware of all of my imperfections and I'm aware that the Savior has lifted me to a place that I don't feel like I belong in. And there's always going to be a little bit of that for us when we literally are being asked to stand in his stead. So that's a little scary. Let's just name that, that, that reality. Yeah. So always starting with why, getting clear about what our goals are is important. When we get in and we start to talk and you recognize that somebody is speaking Greek. It is actually important to, rather than go along with it, I think uh, I'd love to name that there are, there are three or four important questions. And these are the same questions that we we'll use when we teach, but they always help create clarity. One is either it's an asking or a sharing, I'm noticing something. It's either, what are you noticing with my 14-year-olds when we're teaching them a new concept? They read a verse together. The first question is always, what are you noticing? What observations do you make? What seems to be, what's the learning that's coming up for you since we last visited or whatever that is? There's always a chance to reflect on what you're seeing or noticing. Also, as a leader, sometimes I'm going to just simply reflect. I'm noticing, Kurt, that as we start, you've got a really, a lot of possibilities from which we could choose. And therefore, then my next question becomes, going back to how we started earlier, what is most important here to start to clarify? The next question that I believe is important is what's important about that. So if we're starting with a topic and we're trying to get some understanding about it, here's what we're going to go toward. What's important about this? And what does it mean is the third question. If we're going to talk about compassionate service for a sister in our ward who has some disability, 
what is when we talk about compassionate service, it's kind of funny that we throw these terms around all the time, Kurt, and we believe we're all on the same page. <laughs> and I think it's important to stop and think about what 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 do we mean when we say compassionate service? What is it that we're actually wanting to have happen? What are what is it that we want to create? And to get alignment about around where we're trying to go, and instead of boring down into the details of how we're going to get there when we're not really even aligned on what it is that we're after. I just think it's, it's in life, in our one-on-one conversations, in our meetings, a lot of times that we're using terminology that means one thing to one person and something to someone else, and we haven't stopped to align around what it is. Yeah. And it gets, creates a lot of misconceptions. So getting clear on what do we mean by that. And then I think to be able to say, now what do we do about it? That's, that's really the next thing. So it's why, what, and how. Always why, what, and how. What's important first? What is it that we're going for? How do we get there? I would say it might be one more thing. It's, uh, let's, let's go to the place. There's one more thing coming up for me, Kurt, going back to your question. Let's go to the yeah. place where we're in dialogue. And all of a sudden, I'm having a recognition that I'm not tracking. Now, have you ever been in a meeting when, that, when that's happened before, Kurt? Yes, many times. What, what, what do you, so what do you do? So let, let's, just, let's just go there for a second because I'd be curious in part because it might help us think about how we speak to other people who might have that same problem. So when you're not tracking in a meeting, what do you do? Like when I, <laughs> I usually stay quiet because it's almost like my, my ego doesn't want to reveal to the room that I'm completely confused or I've been so off track for so long that if I bring it up now, like they'll look at me like, <laughs> what, what planet have you been on? Right. And so the ego gets in the way where I, I'll just stay quiet. That's what first comes to mind. Yeah. I would expect that that's probably true for a lot of people. Yeah. Most of us, when we don't know, we stay quiet, which just accelerates the confusion. I'd love to offer a perspective, Kurt. I wonder if, especially discerning leaders, leaders who have the spirit of discernment, which I believe a lot of Ephraimites do, what if the confusion that you're experiencing is actually the spirit of discernment prompting you to notice that others in the room are also confused? Yeah, right. And when you get out of me and we go, okay, all right, I'm noticing that I'm experiencing some confusion and I'm noticing that it would help me. So I'm, I notice my language, Kurt. Notice that there's a way that we can tell on ourselves that doesn't make us dumb. I'm noticing that I might feel a little confused around what you mean when you say this. And notice that that may actually be a reflection of what others in the room are feeling. And there may be other people around you who go, oh, thank you. Right. And I've been that person that said, oh, thank you many times, right? I'm so glad right. they raised their hand because I'm exactly where they're at. Well, it's the point that you're making, Kurt, is to back up at the beginning, because oftentimes when we start a, a meeting, we're talking about why we're here and what's important. There is a space that I've noticed in teams that seem to function best. And I don't, I don't know that this wouldn't work for ward councils. I would use this both with my State Relief Society presidency and in other presidencies I've been part of, both as a counselor and a president, asked for this. And uh, in my one-on-one meetings, it's something we do in coaching, and it's about designing the relationship. Now, that might sound really formal and a very simple way of saying it's, let's just agree about how we're going to be together. What are some of the things that will just help us be together so that we can all feel confident and, and safe about sharing? Often, uh, teams that have that conversation overtly, they mitigate a lot of the confusion that you're talking about, Kurt, and they get people who feel uncertain rather than holding back because we've discussed in agreement ahead of time how we're going to be together, then, then the judgment isn't there. Uh, there's an interesting thing to just speak to the business world for a moment. Google 
did a really interesting study to examine top-performing teams, and their findings would be equally true for ward councils, because the number one thing that created high-performing teams, cohesive, agile, able to make and execute decisions quickly, was psychological safety. Yeah. And just remember, when we come in as Latter-day Saints, and I'm just thinking about, again, uh, my own experiences, but over the years when we were navigating our challenges at home or you know, our son's injury, and he was struggling as he, you know, depression and anxiety that was interfering with his ability to serve a mission and other things. And we're just thinking, I don't belong here. I'm not a model. What looks like at home doesn't look like a model of perfect perfectness or whatever the things that we've got going in the background. We actually create our own unsafe feelings. We bring them to the meeting. The beliefs I have about myself, I carry into the meeting and it interferes. I will never forget, and I I would probably echo every sister who is listening to this, there is nothing more intimidating in all the universe than to be one of three sisters in the room with 15 brothers in their suits and white shirts and their priesthood keys and their amazingness, and, and we're supposed to represent the fairer gender and all the perspective of women, and I remember sitting next to the state primary president, state young women president, and all three of us are, we're not sure who should hide behind whom, right? <laughs> yeah. And I, I, you know, there's a little bit of that at the ward level, but I do think that there's just a way that when we bring our fears and insecurities to a meeting, what happens is it interferes, fear interferes with our ability to experience oneness. Yeah. And it's my opinion, so I'm going to share a perspective about our covenants that relate to this. It's almost as though before we go to those situations, the law of sacrifice isn't just my time, talents, or means. It's, will I put down my judgment? Will I put down my fear? Will I let go of my false beliefs about myself and other people and show up authentically in service? Now, I think most of us want to say yes to that. And I recognize that all of us, every single one of us, come with our fears and we bring those to the meeting and that interferes then with our ability to experience unity. And so in many ways, one of the first things is to simply, as a leader, when you name that, look, I recognize that for all of us, we have our our feeling of confidence about being a leader and we also have our fears about being a leader. And and here we're going to trust that we've got each other and the Savior's got what we don't have. And so whatever you say here is going to be valued and no one's going to judge it. And will you all agree to that? So when I look at the teams that have the highest level of performance, they have a no judgment zone, overtly spoken and invited, and people operate from it. And it allows for people to have more safety and sharing. Uh, number two, it is the, the second agreement that I see high-performing teams and relationships have. It is everybody bring your puzzle piece. It is I'm back-to-back with you. And if I don't share my puzzle piece, Kurt, there's 180 degrees missing. In a room full of 10 or 12 people, each of us have one puzzle piece. The stake president doesn't have more puzzle pieces than the rest of us. He's got one piece. And my sweet stake president, Jeff Kerr, I just love him so much. And he knew how much he needed to invite other people in. And he worked really hard to invite people into the equation by asking really good questions, by hearing them, by repeating back what he heard. It sounds like you're saying this. It sounds like what's important about this is this. And allowing people to feel validated and heard. He was so good about that. It's so important. The last puzzle piece is what we call confident vulnerability, and it's exactly what we're describing. It's the confidence that God has em- empowered each of us with something unique and special. We can see it. He's also given all of us weakness, just like he gave us strengths, and strengths don't make you good, and weakness doesn't make you bad. Make you human. And when I recognize that my weakness is someone else's gift to shine, to feel valuable, 
to feel like they matter. And I give them room. I speak up and say, I'm noticing that there's something here that is a little unclear to me. I wonder what the rest of you think about the meaning of this or how this relates. And you give people a space. And I've yet to have anybody walk away from that and go, well, you were such an idiot because you asked that. I was like, wow, because people around you who have the chance to then give are lifted up because I was willing to show my hand. Yeah. And, and I would imagine like just that, you know, you talk about creating space and, and, and walking into a meeting. I think it's natural to feel like, okay, I have a perspective. I have a voice here. I want it to be heard. And maybe I do feel safe uh, to, to speak up and say it. But instead of saying, I have a perspective and I sort of want to win people over to my perspective, walking in there and saying, we're all different pieces to the solution. So how can we work together to identify our piece, not so that we win and, and shape everybody else's piece like mine, so that we can start putting a, a broader vision and purpose together. Wow, Kurt, that is, that's a really loaded question. It's a great question. So I'm betting that there are other people out there wanting to go, what is my piece? First, let me give you, I'll just give you a statistic for those who love numbers and understanding the answer to this. It actually validates why your question is so important, Kurt. So going back to this idea that there, there are patterns of talent that you can mathematically identify. And over the years, I've, I've spent 20 years, so over 2,000 hours of coaching and strengths coaching with people. And what I've discovered is that most people really play to about eight to 10 strengths pretty solidly. And then they've got another five or six or seven that they can pull from that are a little less strong. The chances, Kurt, that you have the same top 10 strengths as anybody else on the planet in the same order. Are you ready for this? So this is based on 34 themes of talent, one in 476 trillion and there's not, there's not a trillion people on the, on the planet, right? So well, the there's, there's 120 billion people born since Adam and Eve. So yeah. the thing that's wow. important, so just to validate the importance of your question, it's, I don't know if you'll remember, Neil Anderson gave this really awesome conference talk about two or three years ago, and there was a graphic. It's so beautiful. And I'm just, I'm picturing it in my mind, and it's the graphic of the world. And every person was a puzzle piece. And he said, each of us, our puzzle pieces, and each of us help put other puzzle pieces in place. Now, when I hold my puzzle piece back, Kurt, what it means is the person whose puzzle piece is adjacent to mine can't see where to lay their puzzle piece down. They don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah. My holding back means that other people around me also feel inclined to hold back. Yeah. Now, I'm not suggesting that putting my puzzle piece down needs to be about me and my vision because I believe when we start to lift ourselves out of our fear, our minds go from me to we. Yeah. And when we go to we, then sometimes my puzzle piece might be asking questions to help other people clarify the puzzle pieces that are around them. And what do I have to bring? Now, let's go to, to answering, how do I find out what my puzzle piece is? I think there, there are a couple of things that a person can do. So here's the easy one. Here's the first one. First one is sit down with someone who cares about you. And you're going to ask them, to ask you some questions. And this is the question. This is the first question. Tell me about a time when you made a difference. When was it? And what did you do? And by the way, I love to ask this question and, I, I, and, and then isolate it to a time period. Tell me about a time you made a difference when you were a little child. And I, I think most people could probably find a time when something they did mattered. Tell me about a time you made a difference when you were a teenager. What was it? And what did you do? Tell me about a time when you were a young adult that you made a difference and you start to go through the timeline of your life and you start to tell stories. And if someone's listening, writing it down, here's what I'll bet. I'll put money on it. 
you're going to find that there's a pattern. There almost always is. That there's a pattern about how we make a difference. And our pattern goes all the way back to our childhood because we spent 10,000 years before we came here developing these talents and we brought them to earth with us. And as a little child, if you look back, I can look back. I was coaching my younger brothers and sisters. I'm the oldest of 10 when I was seven. My mom had some difficulty with bipolar disorder. I read her like a book when I was a child. And I cared so much about her and my family that I pulled them together and I coached them into how we would mitigate that. I was a little tiny kid and we all have these gifts and we brought them with us. We practiced them for years. And so when you start to tell stories over time and you have someone who will simply listen and write down what you're saying and reflect back, it sounds like what you said is this. It sounds like what's important to you is this. And you start to tell three to five stories. By the time you get through five stories, you're going to see some patterns. Now, if you take Strength Finder 2.0, my favorite strengths assessment on the planet, what you're going to find is that when you go and get your Strength Finder results, I'll put money on the fact that you can take your Strength Finder results and hold them up to your stories and go, oh, yeah, there's my strength called empathy right there. There's my strength called connectedness right there. And you could put the strength back into the story and go, oh, yeah, I've been using that since I was a little kid. Now, I think a strengths assessment's lovely. When I've, uh, I've done some work with missionaries in the Ogden North Mission a few years back. And one of the things that, uh, that I saw there was the use of their patriarchal blessing in the context of their strengths results. I believe that the next piece is once you've got stories, if you've got a formal assessment tool, and then if you've got, as I'm thinking about your patriarchal blessing, and you start to go, how do those things weave together? And then I could go, the spirit of discernment was true for me when I was a little girl. I could discern. I didn't know what I was doing, but that spirit of discernment was there. And when you start to give language, Then you begin to realize when I come to a meeting, my particular contribution may not be that I'm going to offer brilliant solutions, but what I might offer is good questions. And I might help link these two disparate ideas together because I listen very carefully and help that person understand that that person is saying something completely different. But if you put them together, you've got the solution. And so I've learned that when I go into a room, I don't have to be all all of it. I just have to be the little thing I was born to be. And my job is then to magnify other people's puzzle pieces so they can play well too. And then when you know it, then you just show up who you are and stop trying to be what you're not. Yeah. You know? Yeah. yeah I, I love this, this whole analogy as far as the puzzle pieces, because it, the, the, uh, I mean, a puzzle piece implies that it's not complete. Right. And so oftentimes as leaders, it's easy to sort of, maybe you're, you know, you're called as a, as a bishop and you think, okay, it's my turn to present my vision and do it my way. And, but when we see it, like, no, we only bring one piece, just like everybody else brings one piece. It's never about, this is about my vision, or this is what, how I want to see things done. And I'm in the chair now, right? And so you bring that to the group saying, and it just stimulates this perspective of curiosity of, of, I want to, I want to put these together. Let's see how they fit. Right. And that stimulates such a more effective meeting or uh, culture in general. Right. Well, what you just said is really important. And here's a perspective I'd, I'd love to add to where you're looking, because the idea of a puzzle piece, you're, what you're saying about puzzle piece is so important that if I can let go that I don't have to have everything, I just put my puzzle piece out knowing that it might stimulate someone else. I'm thinking again back to scripture and John 17 and the, the, the great intercessory prayer that they may be one is thou father art in me and I in thee. And then he goes on to say that they may become perfect in one. And you think about the Greek meaning of the word as perfect, as whole and complete. And it's okay that right now, you and I, we help each other become more whole through the Savior. And, uh, you know, again, it's uh, without 
speaking of sacred things outside of sacred places, but it's, it's the experience that we have in the temple of feeling our ability to magnify one another, to strengthen each other in living and honoring our covenants, and that it's okay that I am not all, and I don't know it all, and I'm not able to do it all, and it's so great that I've got a bishop or a state president or a young women president who they're figuring out who they are through the work that they're doing with, uh, that we're doing together. Yeah. If we can, we can recognize that one of our purposes in meeting, it's not just to meet this, the needs of the people out there, the ward, the stake, the whomever, that our first purpose is that we lift one another, that we serve us so we can serve others, that when we come into that meeting with the mindset that we magnify one another just the way the Savior magnifies us. And as we magnify each other, we find the solutions we need to serve those that we're called to serve. It's, it's a different mindset because we, we come into those meetings with a hunger to be able to serve those we've been called to serve. But we might want to remember that it's just like what Elder Holland said about missionaries. The first conversion is for the missionary. The first service is the missionary to their companion. We are no different that my first service, if I'm in a one-on-one with my state president, is to him. Yeah. It's to lift him. That when he leaves, he's stronger as a state president because we've met. Yeah. You know? And when we start to serve each other that way, everything's possible. Everything's possible. Yeah. And I love that, just that perspective, because there's so much empathy in that state of mind, right? When you, because I mean, I, and I get the, <laughs> I'm like a, I get the emails from people that think, you know, my leader is just a train wreck. You won't believe this guy or whatever it is. But when you realize, well, he's just sort of still discovering what his piece is. And I'm, and maybe the, the goal isn't to have a perfect leader in our organizations. And maybe that's why we do have lay ministries, you know, lay leadership is because it stimulates more of an opportunity for that person to discover who they are. And so the best way I can serve him isn't to encourage him to, you know, come around and, and get on board here, but instead be open to the process that that leader is going through, even though it may end up that our ward isn't a perfect ward in the long run, and that's okay, right? It's part of the sanctifying process. Well, a couple of things that come up for me when you say that, Kurt, it feels super important to just say, when we're back-to-back, and you might even be making me crazy, by the way, if we're back-to-back, because when you're speaking, I don't understand. I could feel triggered because I don't understand. We've mentioned that before. And yet, there's this place that when I begin to get curious and not judgmental, unconditional curiosity is, by the way, the antidote to all judgment of self and others. And so when I go get curious about what you mean and what's important about what you're sharing and try to understand it, I begin to see God in you. Yeah. So when I understand my own strengths, our strengths are just pieces of our Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother's DNA in us. When I begin to see them, I see Him in me. Therefore, it's harder for me to be afraid because if he is in me, even though I don't know, and even though I'm undeveloped, I know that he is part of what, of this equation, this imperfect uh, and yet not fully developed equation. When I see that in you, so when I get curious about what makes, what's different, and I begin to see God in you, something sacred happens. When I look at you with an appreciative lens instead of a fearful lens, something happens. And again, I, I mentioned this earlier, I, be, I believe the law of sacrifice asks us, what will I put down? so that I can be fully available to love with all of my heart, my mind, and strength. That's charity. That's consecration. And it isn't just time, talents, and money. Will I let go of my judgment? Will I let go of my belief that I'm not enough? Will I let go of my, my fear that somebody might judge me if I say I don't know what's going on or I don't understand? And I, I believe that's the law of sacrifice. And I believe that the law of the gospel, the doctrine of Christ, that anchoring in the Savior, 
eyes on him. DNC 6 that tells us, hey, I don't condemn you. <laughs> you know, just go your way and sin no more. And whatever you sow, you'll also reap. Look unto me in every thought, doubt, not fear, not those important messages. Look, you don't know everything. It's okay that you don't know. In fact, DNC 6 is one of the most beautiful gifts to all of us because it's where the Savior reminds us, you have a gift. It's sacred. It comes from above. It's important. Yeah. And that leads me to the question of, you know, as far as like, because you mentioned this earlier, as far as, you know, stop bringing your fears and insecurities into some of these meeting dynamics. But I mean, how do we even, because that makes sense on paper, but what does that look like? Like, how do we do that when, because fears and insecurities can be, can just consume us, I mean, and identify us in ways. I mean, that's the adversary leverages those things. So every day, all day, right? And so how do we begin to let go of those things? Like what processes can we go to through to actually let go? You know, it's interesting because we paused at the doctrine of Christ and you think about repentance is a change of mind. It's a fresh view of God or yourself or the world. That's what the Bible dictionary says, direct quote. It comes from a Greek word that means a change of mind or fresh view of God or oneself or the world. And so I, I'm going to give you one of my very favorite coaching tools. Are you ready? So for those of you who are listening, you can write this down because okay. I have worked with so many people and have found that when you start to ask these questions and you ask them in this order, it's like you, you take a walk into the sacred chambers of someone's heart and you go with them and you love them while they go there and they're able to identify and flip it around. And so the tool that I'm about to introduce to you, we call it the C-shifter tool okay. because it changes the way you see. Okay, so the first question is this, and I might name something, by the way. I think uh, we have to allow ourselves and tune in. Like, there's a way that we can begin to discern the Savior never uses fear as a tool to motivate. That is not his style. Mm-hmm. He uses love. And so our negative emotions are great feedback mechanisms to tell us that we're holding a belief that's a lie. When we're holding negative beliefs, the feeling will be, as DNC 9, 7 through 9 says, uh, we'll feel confused. Mm-hmm. Okay? So using our negative emotions... When we stop and check in, when I first started doing this with myself, I actually, every time I would take a drink, I would use water as a reminder to stop and just do it scan. Deanna, where are you right now? Because we get trained to live in our fear and we get really good at it. And you're right that I think, especially with Latter-day Saints, Satan is an expert at using fear as a driving force in the way that we operate. So if we're going to undo that, we have to become aware of when we're being driven by fear. So negative emotion is the indicator that you're holding a lie. Okay, so then the fastest way out of it is to ask yourself a series of questions, and here's what they are. Are you ready? Number one, what's the story I'm telling myself right now? Now, uh, to use an example so we can make this real, I was 23 years old when our little disabled daughter was placed in our arms. We were at BYU. We had no money. We had a two-year-old son, and they tell us, Mr. and Mrs. Murphy, she's going to be severely mentally retarded. She'll never walk. That was the words. And... I watched her suffer excruciatingly for the next three months in the hospital. And every time she suffered, I suffered with her. I began, we wanted to have another child. And I began researching uh, what caused spina bifida so that we could eliminate it. And that led me to a conclusion that I had caused her disability, my ignorance. There were things that I didn't know that I could have avoided, things I could have done to prevent, and I didn't do any of it. And so I held a belief that led me to clinical depression for eight years. And the belief was, I have caused her suffering, and she will never have a normal life, and it's my fault. And so 
this, by the way, this tool was born when she was eight years old in the hospital where they had to break her legs at her hips and ankles and rotate her bones outward and reattach them because she could flip her feet all the way back around. Wow. She was suffering so excruciatingly, and I had been suffering for years with her. And the Savior in his kindness asked me these questions. This is where it came from. Deanna, what's the story you're telling yourself right now? I, I'm causing this. For three days, I just held her in my arms because she cried every time she woke up. And I began to realize that I had been telling myself the story, that this was my fault. I'd caused it. Second question is, if you keep telling yourself this story, where will it lead you? Well, I knew the answer to that question because I had spent eight years in clinical depression hmm. and had gone, I'd had some counseling. I was actually almost suicidal at different times because I would get so depressed believing that my family was better off uh, without me talking about confident vulnerability, right? To share that here. And so you ask yourself, what's the, what's the impact if I keep thinking like this? Uh, what's the end of the story? And then we'll ask this question and this is where it begins to change. So what would the new ending look like? If I were to write a new ending to this story, and I remember the spirit inviting me to consider like, what if this is a gift? What if this wasn't an accident that you caused? What if there's a way that I intended to bring more joy than you could ever imagine into your life through this gift? And what would the new ending look like? And maybe for the first time in my life, instead of seeing the loss of her never marrying, never having children, not being able to go to school, not being able to make the kind of contributions that you want and envision and dream for your children, I began to imagine that she would be giving some of the gifts that were starting to show up. So that third day, she looked up at my eyes and saw my pain, and she tried to make me laugh. She tried to ease my hurt. I was hurting because she was hurting, and she wanted to help me. And I began to wonder what would happen if she could take that compassion and give it to the world. Who could she bless? Whose life might be different? And all of a sudden, I saw what was happening with an appreciative lens. What's the new ending? The new ending is she could have a great life. She could still bring joy to people. She could still have an impact. And the thing that we ask next, so this isn't such a global thing, is, okay, what would be one step that you could take to move towards that new ending. And for me, the, the step was simple. Every day, notice one thing that I could appreciate about her. So instead of looking at her through a deficit lens and go, this is my broken kiddo, I caused this, I could go, look at what she did today. Notice that she made this tiny little step and begin to appreciate it. Okay, so what is one commitment you will make to begin to move toward the new ending? And I, I'm just going to sh share with you that that simple tool it not only flipped the story on its ear, it actually opened up the door to what I'm doing right now. Because I had a meeting not three months after that with a special ed director. It was the toughest meeting that we'd ever had with the school district. And I wasn't working. I had a master's degree in psychology and I had a, a three-year-old in preschool and I, I didn't want to have a career because I had these kids with these needs. But you know, I, it was a tough meeting and we came out of that meeting and he said, Deanna, I have been through hundreds of these meetings. I've never seen what just happened. I can't believe how you came alongside us. You helped us to see what your needs are. You listened to us so well. Can you help other parents? Can you help them do what you did here today? And can you help us work with parents so that we can collaborate instead of fight with them? And that was my first job. And I don't believe I would have ever got it. And it ended up that Mandy and her disability created my career. Yeah. And I, I've been, I work in 32 countries. I, I mean, there are thousands and thousands and thousands of people 
that have experienced our content and it started with that tool. That's powerful. And so, um, so it begins with that, that first question is what's the story I'm telling myself. And then you said, is, did you say what's the better ending or what's the not, second? Not yet. Second question is if I keep telling myself this story, where will it take me? Hmm. Like it's letting yourself follow through and notice and not in a shameful way, but to just go, God, you know, I'm kind of tired of doing clinical depression. <laughs> I'm tired every day of hating my life and feeling like I'm failing as a parent. I don't think this is going to get me anywhere good. And then the next question is, what's a new ending? It never occurred to me that I could change the ending to the story. I just thought the story was what it was. You see, here's one of the things we teach leaders, and it's equally applicable here. It's not what happens to us, Kurt, that informs how we feel, what we do, or what we get. It's how we choose to see. This is why repentance is so important. Repentance isn't just for sin. Repentance is teaching us how to align our view with the way the Savior sees. And I did not understand until that moment that he sent her to me as one of his kindest gifts. He intended to bring me more joy than I would ever find if I would have had a healthy daughter. And uh, she, she knows that, actually, and she takes great pride. She tells me that she's grateful for her disability. She knows every time that I fly off to the Philippines or somewhere that she's the reason I'm going to serve people on the other side of the world. She knows that, and I let her know all the time. I just think there's a way that when we understand the covenants that we have made to this degree, we realize that we can bury our own weapons of war, and our deepest weapons are the ones we create ourselves through fear. When we bring fear into meetings, we interfere with our ability to edify and lift and find unity in the Savior. Yeah, We can't have our hearts knit together in unity and love when you have fear. You use the word empathy, Kurt. Empathy is just another way for saying charity. Yeah. Charity is empathy. Empathy yeah. is charity. Yeah, that's powerful. And really, you know, just, just recognize, just I think the process of recognizing some of these fears and insecurities and then just asking that first question, like, why am I telling this story? Like, where does this come from? And just that exercise alone, I think, will will get them so far, you know, away from these fears and anxieties and really analyze because they may be one, they may have certain fears and anxieties at work that maybe never show up at church. And then they have certain fears and anxieties that show up at church when they're been called as a Leaf Society president or whatever it is. And so just sure. looking at them and, and sitting with them a while and, and trying to understand them so that you can then figure out how to remove them. Right. Right. What you just said is so important. And by the way, I've used this tool with Relief Society presidents in my one-on-ones. Mm -hmm. We all have fears. And this is a tool that you can use with yourself and take it to prayer even. it's uh, Sometimes we have a hard time identifying the story. Maybe I'll be a little personal and share something with you as we are speaking about this because you're asking, how do we let go of fears? And it is interesting that so uh, it was about a little over 10 years ago that I uh, would walk in the trees. Northern Minnesota is so beautiful. It's fall, yeah. the leaves are coming down, and I'm noticing the dark, the dark rich soil beneath my feet and the, the great life that grew from it and found myself asking, reach, crying out, Father, what needs to come down in my life so new life can come? And I will never forget the Spirit's answer. It was, Deanna, give me your fear. Give me all of it because you cannot consecrate yourself fully to me when part of your heart is dedicated to storing fear 
you have not given your fear to me, Deanna, that part of your heart you've held back. And I've paid for everything that you're afraid of. I paid for everything that's hurting inside there. And if you'll give it to me, I'll take you to places you've never been. And I went, ah, I'm scared. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know how to give up my fear. And it was, he was so kind because he, be, that's where he, he really began to teach me because I started asking him. And I wanted to understand, how can I give up my fear so that I can be a better servant? And one of the things, just I'll just share flat out, that there was a time where he just counseled with me, Deanna, write down the stories from your life and ask yourself the stories from your life where you have got pain sadness that is not yet resolved and with each of those stories write down what you believed because of what happened and I discovered Kurt I had a bunch of stories I wrote for pages and pages but I discovered that all those stories all had the same three beliefs and I'll never forget the day that I went to the temple with those beliefs and he helped me sort through and cherish the lessons and give up the lies and walk away from those beliefs forever and it was the beginning of turning over the storage containers in my heart because I had them and we all have them. And I didn't realize I, he was teaching me, like, if you imagine your heart's like a quart jar, let's, I, I recognize it's not finite, but let's just use that for an example. Yes. Imagine that you've had a lot of pain or fear that you haven't resolved. It's kind of like, if you think about that, you're holding that as storage, it means that you're operating out of one very tiny percentage and the rest of it is being held in storage. And when we give up the storage, then all of that is available energetically to love and serve people. And I, he was teaching me that principle while I was still holding all my fears. And teaching me, Dan, if you'll give me your fear, I will free up more room for you to love and find joy. And he is absolutely right. And I found that with each lie that I held, and one of them, I'll just give you an example because lots of us have it. My value equals my performance. As Latter-day Saints, we have a version of that. My value equals the callings I get called to. My value equals if my sons go on missions and my children marry in the temple. My value equals my ability to live everything that the church teaches perfectly and have everybody believe that that's true. I, I mean, on and on and on. Like, I'm, I, yeah. so, It's so ridiculous when you say it out loud, but there's a way that in our heads, because the world teaches us, to equate our value outside of ourselves. And we do not, I think we struggle to understand intrinsic value, value that's not related. Like I don't get more value because I'm a state release society president than I do as a Sunday school teacher. I think a Sunday school teacher is way easier. I like that way better. Take that one anytime. But you, you, don't, you don't get more value because you're, you're living better or because your children do something better. And the world teaches us to think like that, and it gets in our way. And then we, co we compare our, our value meter to somebody else's value meter, like, we, like it can go up and down like the stock market, and it, cre it creates fear. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah. That, that's a tangent. I didn't mean to go off on it. But well, I no, and I appreciate sort of this, this uh, wormhole we've gone down a little bit because, um, you know, it, when, when people want to learn about meetings, it's easy to, you know, default to the things like, well, here's a, a cool agenda format you can use, and here's how to set up the chairs or whatever. But how many times do we walk into a ward council or to a one-to-one one -one meeting or, or any type of meeting and say, what are the stories that each individual walked in here with? And if I'm going to create a, a atmosphere that's, that's safe where they can bring things up and bring it out, like they first have to deal with those stories or else, I mean, there's nothing... There, or there's nothing I can do. There's not cool, some cool tactic that's going to solve all that. Right. And so um, creating that safety, you know, encouraging people to say, you know, 
what stories are you telling yourself and, and what can we do to help you figure out your, your infinite value and the value that you bring to this meeting, right? And I think that's just a dynamic we never take time to consider and I'm glad we're doing it here. Well, it's interesting that you went there because you realize that this is directly tied to what we're up to in the doctrine of Christ. This is what the doctrine of Christ is about. It isn't just that we turn from our sin. It's we turn from our fear. We turn from our judgment because the fear and the judgment actually hold us back from consecration. And I would say it would be more like uh, sins of omission usually than sins of commission. But I do believe it's still, uh, it still affects, it still affects us. It feels a bit like there's a need for us to summarize because we've, we've gone uh, a little bit in a roundabout conversational way, which is something I always love with you, but it feels important for our listeners to say, okay, what, what, are, what's, let's tie it up in a bow. So we've, we've identified a couple of really important principles. Uh, number one, that when people are aligned around a shared purpose and they've had a chance to weigh in on the purpose, it actually helps them come more fully to the meeting. Having clear goals is important. That's obvious. Uh, the one thing that's less obvious is to stop and say, how are we going to be together? In our Sunday school class, we've brought those three agreements that I named. Will you all agree to have a no judgment zone? Uh, will you all agree to bring your puzzle piece? Will you all agree to just know and not know? Confident vulnerability, be confident about what you are, be okay with who you're not. And then we constantly validate each other. An example of how powerful that is right now, we've got in our Sunday school class a little girl, she's 14, just moved to the United States from uh, the Honduras. She doesn't speak English very well, and I'm astounded both at her willingness to share. She speaks in Spanish. We have the, uh, my fellow teacher is, uh, speaks Spanish fluently, so she'll translate for her. And the rest of the class is so kind and encouraging of her, and it makes her feel welcome and willing. And these agreements have helped people play. I think there's something around making sure that we've got clear agreements around why, what, and how. I also believe that there is this element uh, where every time we've got an agenda that there's room for us to explore a gospel topic. And one gospel topic is re we're talking about repentance here in a different way than most of us ever think about it. It's having a change of mind or fresh view of yourself. It's recognizing the lies that we believe that get in our way of fully finding joy and unity and being together. It's recognizing that individually I can tackle that, but boy, you know what? As a leader, you can also invite it. I'll never forget a Sunday school class about four months ago where I invited them on a post-it note, write down your biggest fear, put it on a post-it note. And then I asked them to post it. So share with the whole class. So because we have a lot of safety, they were willing to do it. And each of them put their post-it note up there. Do you know what 60% 60, 60 of that class said? I don't think I'll ever be good enough to go home and live with my heavenly father again. And I'm really sad about that. Now I needed to know that. I really needed to know that because then as I go and minister one-on-one -on -one with them, and even though I'm just a Sunday school teacher, I don't want to say just a Sunday school teacher because I feel really honored to be a Sunday school teacher, I go to their homes and I do one-on-ones just like I did when I was a State Relief Society president with my Relief Society presidents. And I go sit with those kids and I invite their parents to sit in on because some of these parents have never seen a one-on-one -on -one before. Yeah. Some of them don't know how to do it. Yeah. And so I have a one-on-one -on -one with their child and invite them to be present and help that young person recognize their gifts, recognize their testimony and their growth, and challenge them in very specific ways to grow themselves spiritually. And I'm having some of the most sacred experiences, including with a young man whose mother just died about four months ago, and his father's not a member of the church. 
and having one of the sweetest and most sacred ministering experiences when I went to that young man's home. And I started off by asking his dad, uh, what is something you love about your son, Eric? What is the quality or strength or characteristic you really value? And we started right there. And then turning to Eric and saying, Eric, what do you love about coming to Sunday school every week and starting off by sharing, when have I felt the Savior's love? And then to have Eric describe what it's like for him to think about and remember the Savior's love. And then his dad's crying. And the Spirit is so strong. And these opportunities that we have to be with one another and strengthen one another, they're so sacred. And the Savior needs us to be magnifying each other and to not be afraid and to just show up with love. And I, I believe uh, meetings are just another way of ministering and loving each other the way the Savior would. And if we showed up at every meeting believing, I've come to love everybody here, I'm going to help love them. And uh, I didn't figure that out at the beginning of my being a sacredly sighted president. I figured it out by the time I was released, but I really see it better now. Every yeah. meeting is just a chance for us to love each other. And when we do that, fear goes away yeah. and there is no room for it in the room. And the spirit just fills up the space. Yeah. Oh, this is that's so powerful. I love that. And, you know, speaking of one to one meetings, you know, because early on in this, you talked about as far as like establishing the purpose, what's the why of meeting today? And I'm putting that in the context of one-to-one meetings. I think we oftentimes miss that because I would imagine, you know, you think about a ministering interview, I would guess on average, the number one question that's asked first is, how are your families doing, right? (laughs) But imagine if we sat down together and said, what's the purpose of us meeting today? And and it's not, and most, and hopefully they don't say, or if they do, you know, you have some work to do, they'll probably say, well, we're supposed to meet. This is what we've been asked to do, right? But I mean, find asking that question with no preconceived answer or that I'm going to tell you why we're meeting, but just seeing how they respond. And I mean, there's so much purpose and meaning and can come from just starting with that question of asking one-to-one, why do you think we're meeting today? Yeah. You know, I had a really sweet experience. I was on the receiving end uh, a couple of weeks ago of ministering interviews with our Relief Society presidency and they set it up like tithing settlement and they had all members of the Relief Society presidency in the corners of the gym running Uh meetings at the same time. We all had to sign up for times. And I was blown away by the sweet counselor who sat across from me and she said, we're here today because I want to make sure that we're meeting your needs, that we're understanding the challenges that you're facing and that we're able to just to do a better job of coming alongside and support you. And we really care about you. How are you doing? How are you doing, Deanna? And I'm thinking, how many times have I asked that of someone else? It's the first time in years that anybody just asked me that. And I felt so loved in that moment. That just starting with that simple thing, she didn't ask me what I thought my purpose was, but she did share, we're here today because we want to make sure we're loving you. Great, we'll talk about your families, but we're here today because we want to love you and we want to understand what your needs are. And it was really special. Yeah. I think we don't, I think a lot of us go through our lives and we give and give and give and give and we don't feel or know if it even matters. In that tiny little moment for 15 minutes as I sat with that counselor, I knew I was loved. And I knew that the work that I was doing with these sweet little ladies, which nobody ever sees, I don't know, mattered to God, mattered to her. Yeah. And I, I just think that, again, the purpose of our meeting is to love each other. That's yeah. what it is. It's so we, stand, we stand in the Savior's stead and we just love them for a moment with his hands and his eyes and his voice. And boy, if we, if we had that mindset every time we started a meeting, we, would, we wouldn't go very far wrong and we sure wouldn't get caught in fear. Yeah. 
So Deanna, as we wrap up, I just, a few things that stood out to me. One was just that, you know, bringing that question to the one-to-one meetings, I think is so powerful. And then, you know, your list of questions as far as what are you noticing? What's important about that? What does it mean? And what what are we going to do about it? Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. I, I love that first question as far as what are you noticing? And just from our interactions, I've used that several times, you know, in a teaching scenario, especially when a scripture is read or something, because I'm, it's so easy to passive aggressively sort of guide the class to a certain place. But when that power, that question of what did you notice about that? It like removes that preconceived or that the game of guess what the teacher's thinking dynamic that isn't helpful. And it really just opens it up and saying, no, I really want to know what you noticed about it. Not what you think I noticed about it, but what you noticed about it. And, and bringing that into a meeting context can really stimulate some great discussion rather than trying to figure out what the bishop is thinking. You know, I want to say what the bishop's thinking. It's a funny thing to say, uh, Kurt, and I'll just, I'll, I'll echo something I said to you four years ago, that a great meeting doesn't start when the meeting starts. The great meeting started uh, six days ago or seven days ago when I read my scriptures in the morning before the day went, and mm-hmm. I started mentally preparing. What I've learned is that great meetings, especially conducted in a gospel perspective, uh, begin in our scripture study. And I, have, I am astounded at how many times a need came up in a ministering conversation or a presidency meeting or a stake council meeting where the answer to the question was something that I studied in my scriptures earlier that week. And so when, you, when the scriptures become part of every meeting, then those questions become even more relevant because now we're discussing something. All of a sudden it's like, oh, wait a minute, let's flip open to DNC 43, 8 and 9. Let's read it together. Let's ask the question. What impressions come to your heart? What do you notice? A lot of times, so with my 14-year-olds, for example, since uh, we're sort of weaving a little teaching into this, before we read a scripture, I always say, now listen, the Holy Ghost wants to speak to you right now. You have to be listening. So as we read, we're going to read it together as a class, and then we're going to, I'm going to ask you to read it again. And I want you to listen for the Holy Ghost. When, when you feel an idea or a word or phrase that jumps out at you, just share it with us. And when we, when we prompt people to prepare for revelation, they do. Because most of the time we don't hear because our minds are too busy. And when we slow down and we point people, look for and listen for what impressions come up. And when you feel them in our meeting today, please just share them because the Holy Ghost is going to teach you different things than he's going to teach me if I'm leading this meeting. So you have full permission when you have an impression to please raise your hand. Even if you're confused, please raise your hand because you might be feeling something that someone else is experiencing and we need help here. So please bring what you have. And I've learned people will do. People will do it if they design them. So designing people is really, it's important and, uh, and helping people get clear about what their roles are and they can show up with confidence. Yeah. I mean, and I think generally we all agree that like, I mean, questions are powerful, but when you have the right questions, it's amazing the difference. I mean, that's a 10 X difference that the right question can make just as far other than just asking questions in general, right? Really drill down to what the right question is. So it's important. It feels important to me to add to what you're saying because we can also get paralyzed by worrying about what the right question is. So a couple of guidelines to help you know what the right question is, is just start a question with what or how or when. Don't use the why question and don't ask yes or no. So right questions are going to be any what, how, or when question. When have you felt the spirit? What is your most important observation 
from the last week? Or when have you felt the Savior's love most recently? That's my question we always start with. How does that feel when you experience that? What does that mean to you? I teach people also that if you let the person's answer drive your next question, you will go right into their heart. So they say, well, uh, I felt the Savior's love this last week when I was listening to, this is one of my kids, he always says, my brother, uh, my brother who's a missionary, I felt the Spirit when we got to listen to him on Friday. And my next question is, what is important about that, Grace? And well, what's important is that I can feel the Spirit testifying to me that he is on, he's on the Lord's work. And I can feel the Spirit prompting me that I need to prepare. How do you need to prepare, Grayson? I need to be reading my scriptures more. It's, so it's amazing. So you let the question drive the next, the answer to the question drive the next question. But what happens is Pete, you'll walk right into people's hearts, right where the Holy Ghost is, where the Holy Ghost starts to magnify what's happening. Beautiful. Yeah, I love that. Walk right into their hearts. So these, these questions, it's, it's, it's true. Well, I have one more question for you, Deanna, but um, if people want to get in touch with you or learn more about your business, and I know you have a great book uh, that you've written, uh, where would you send people to uh, learn more about you? Yeah, the answer is uh, www.peopleacuity.com. And acuity is a word that means seeing with clarity, right? So if you get your eyes tested, you're learning to see with acuity. So peopleacuity.com is our website. I'm also on LinkedIn. And to be honest, like anytime I have a Latter-day Saint who reaches out to me and says, hey, I'm struggling, you got 30 minutes, my answer is always yes. And uh, I just, I feel really driven to we're here to grow a people prepared to meet the Savior. That's what President Nelson said in his last conference talk to us sisters. And I just believe we have to lift each other and help each other. So I'm I'm willing to talk to anybody. That's a scary thing to say because I know that there are lots of people that might be listening to this. But uh, if you're stuck, send me an email. Uh, it's dmurphy at peopleacuity.com. dmurphy at peopleacuity.com. Send me an email. Uh, Kurt, we also have a children's book out uh, that oh, uh, really? I authored with Dave Bowman called Choose to See You. It's out on Desert Book and a neat little book about some of the things we're talking about. Teach children how to dispel the doubts and fears that come into their minds and see themselves for who they truly are. And uh, we'll have another book coming out later in the year about interdependent leadership. So good things happening. Well, cool. Well, as we wrap up and just imagine being in front of a room full of bishops, Relief Society presidents and elders, quorum presidents, all sorts of people that are tasked with holding meetings. What encouragement, what final encouragement would you give to them as they uh, venture off into the world of meetings? That's an easy one, Kurt, is I would say to you and to them, you have been prepared 10,000 years for the mission that you're on right now. And while you may have questions or concerns or worries about doing it right, your spirit knows and remembers. And when you turn to the Savior and you let other people help you, the answers that you need will emerge and you'll have everything that you need. And uh, just be willing to lean into the spirit and lean into each other. And you've got what you need. You're valuable. You matter. You're important. And God needs you to bring your puzzle piece and to not be afraid. Give him your fears and he'll help you. So I think that's what I'd say because we've got it, Kurt. We, we were friends before we came here. We coveted to help him at this time. And we've got to bring, we've got to bring the people prepared for the Savior, ready, ready for him because he needs to come back. And I got a little disabled girl who's waiting to be healed and I can't wait for him to come back. So I'm going to be in line. That concludes my interview with Deanna Murphy. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed that conversation. So good. Listen to it again. Take notes. And as you can see, there's going to be some excellent, valuable content when it comes to the Meetings with Saints Virtual Summit. Be sure not to miss it. It starts March 10th 
and uh, you're going to love it. And you, it's for free, right? You can just go there, leadingsaints.org slash meetings and register. Or I'll tell you in just a second how to register. And don't forget about the Meetings with Saints Virtual Summit on March 17th. Register for free by texting the word LEAD to 474747. It came as a result of the position of leadership which was imposed upon us by the God of heaven who brought forth a restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when the declaration was made concerning the own and only true and living church upon the face of the earth, we were immediately put in a position of loneliness. The loneliness of leadership from which we cannot shrink nor run away and to which we must face up with boldness and courage and ability.